Well, welcome. Um, we are glad that you were with us today, and thank you for, if you're new, thank you for choosing to come worship with us. Sometimes that can be a risky thing, going to a church that you don't know, but we are glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning and, and hope you would continue to do so. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'm usually at the back doors there after the service, so come say hi to me. Um, we are in the middle of a series uh, in the books of Thessalonians, um, and today we're kind of coming to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last week, Pastor Fletcher uh, preached about the sanctifying grace of God that drives us toward holy living. That comes around again at the end of the book, at the end of chapter 5 that we'll see today. But between what he talked about at the beginning of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5, that sanctifying grace of holy living, Paul introdu introduces to us introduces to us and has us lift our eyes to the future hope of glory because it too is part of the sanctifying grace that we need so follow along if you would as I read from God's word first Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 13 and we'll read through into chapter 5 through verse 22 here's the word of the Lord Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief you are all children of the light and children of the day we do not belong to the night or to the darkness so then let us not be like others who are asleep but let us be awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, we pray that you will bless the reading of your word this morning, that you will 
drive it deep into our own hearts that we might know it and live according to it and be encouraged by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I often get asked questions from people in the congregation and in the community. Um, and I get questions of all kinds of different nature. I get questions, some that are theological in nature, uh, and some that are very practical family life issue questions. Maybe a couple of examples would be on the more theological but yet practical as well as when a loved one passes away, sometimes they ask me, where is he or she right now? Is he with Jesus? Or when there's a disagreement between family or some friends and you just can't come to agreement, how am I supposed to live at peace with somebody I disagree with? And do I have to like them? Paul gets these kinds of questions. They came from the Christians in Thessalonica. And he just wrote about them. So let's just look at some of the questions he asks and walk through how he answers those things. That's what I'm going to do today for our structure. So there's three big questions we're going to ask. The first question is, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns? The second big question is, when will Christ return? And the third one is, well, how should we live in the meantime? So the first question is, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns? This concern seems to be raised to Paul from the Christians in Thessalonica because he addresses them and says, now about what you've said, you know, about these things, and he, and he instructs them on that. And so it seems that they are concerned because they've had friends, maybe Christian brothers and sisters who have died, either early deaths or maybe in the persecution that has come upon them. And, um, and so they're like, well, what happened to them? Where are they? And Paul, remember, didn't get to stay very long in Thessalonica. He got driven out by the riot. So he probably never got to talk to them about the afterlife in terms of detail. And so he's filling them in. Now, the teaching of the day in the Greco-Roman world would be that, like, the body is material, and so it's kind of neutral. It's, it's not really good nor bad, but, but it's not going to live on in the afterlife. There's an afterlife that your soul goes on to, and you live consciously but sort of like in a ghostly state but you're like aware of it and so it's kind of like just this soul that's that's risen and so um that's what that's what they're thinking other far eastern religions are have a different view than that and and they vary but some of them say yes the soul will after several reincarnations achieve an eternal state of soul rest or soul sleep and uh and so the soul finds peace but they're also in an unconscious state so the soul is unconsciously at peace. And while that's what they teach and maybe they somehow understand that, I can't put that together. I can't understand how you have peace when you're not aware of anything. Um, but there's different views on that. And Paul writes to say, here's what the truth is in Christ. And so what he comes to do is to assure them is to say that your future hope is so certain that death is like sleep from which you awaken. He uses that metaphor of sleep three times in verses 13 to 15 as you sleep in death. And what he is telling them is at least two things. One is that when you sleep, you rest. And so those who have died in Christ are at rest from their labors. There is no more battle against sin for them. There is no more suffering that they must endure through illness, disease, or otherwise. They are at rest. And then, and then the second part of that sleeping metaphor is there's an awakening 
the awakening on the other side, the, the next morning or the new morning, the next day. And so it's not dead as in unconscious, it's very conscious, it's fully alive. Now why would Paul say this? He says this because Jesus himself has, has indicated this and Paul himself believes it. So you may remember in Luke 23, 43, and I think we have that verse you can put on the screen, when Jesus is crucified and he's there with criminals, one of the criminals asks him to remember him. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's today, it's immediate after they're dying, right? With me implies a conscientiousness to it and it's in paradise. There's no more sin or suffering. Now it's his soul that's going because his body's going to be on that cross this, this uh, thief's. Um, and Jesus' body's in the ground for a few days. Or in Philippians 1, 23 and 24, Paul talks about it this way to the people of Philippi. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, he's saying to die, and be with Christ, with Christ. Which is better by far, because he's going to be aware of it and alive, but it's more necessary for you that I remain here in the body and serve you. And so it's not his time yet. But the point in all that is to say that upon death, those who are in Christ are immediately in the presence of Jesus in their soul while their body remains in the ground. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul goes on in verses 14, uh, 15 and 16 and talks about rising from the dead. And he says that their those who have died, their bodies are in the ground while the soul is consciously present with Jesus. That's what he's saying. And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to return one day, is what Paul is saying. And when he does, those who are alive will see it and witness it. When he comes, and he comes with his, his envoys of heaven, it's going to include the souls of those who have already died in Christ. And as they come to earth, and it's manifest on that last day, the bodies, their dead bodies, will rise from the ground or the sea or wherever they may be and be rejoined with their soul. And so we live forever, body and soul, together. But bodies that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Bodies that cannot be given into sin in the next life in heaven. Bodies that are perfected. Where you don't have to suffer with Parkinson's or hearing loss or blindness or cancer or MS or any other thing we might list. Because we will be reunited, body and soul, perfectly together. Let me, maybe for the younger, well, let me do, I'll give you two illustrations of this, okay? I think it's pretty clear, but just two things to, to make a point of how we recognize this in culture. If you board a flight, there's a flight manifest, and on that flight manifest are the names of all souls on board. Why is that? Because historically, we recognize that should something happen, tragedy occur, and all people perish, their souls are on board because their souls won't perish. That's why we list, that's why it was listed that way. But let me give something for the younger generation, the video game generation, respawning, right? You're playing in that video game and your health is like, oh no, my health is gone, I'm dead. And you're like, ah, don't worry about it, I'm gonna respawn. And you respawn somewhere else, you're like, here I am. I got full strength health again. I'm all good. Right? And what Paul is saying is it's like respawning, but so much more glorious because you're not respawning into a place of conflict and war again. It's in paradise of heaven forever. And it's body and soul together. 
and you're not going to die. So that's what Paul's saying. That's what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns. And when Jesus does return, we will be with him forever, body and soul. But in the meantime, those are with him in soul, present, aware, alive, comforted, knowing Jesus. Right? We even know that there's knowledge because Jesus tells these parables in Luke 16 of uh, rich man and Lazarus. And they have this, this kind of conversation back and forth, awareness of each other, one in, in hell and one in heaven. Or when Jesus uh, is on the Mount of Transfiguration with his, with his disciples and Moses and Elijah appear. Well, how did they do that? I don't know exactly, but they're recognizable. But their bodies aren't resurrected. Well, oh, I guess Elijah might be... Uh, but Moses' body isn't resurrected. It's another thing going to that later. Let me move on to the next point. The next one is this. When will Christ return? So he goes on, this, this key phrase again. Now, brothers and sisters, about this. So it's the next question they, they have. About dates and times? We don't know. It's going to be like a thief in the night. Surprise! Here he is. Or like a, a woman pregnant in labor, right? No, we know it's coming, but don't know exactly the day. And so his point is, be ready. You need to be ready. And here he uses sleep again, but he's using sleep differently. He's using sleep as those who are like slumbering, like not aware of when God's coming and not concerned by it. He's using that as, yeah, they sleep, they drink at night and then sleep. And then they get up and do it again. It's like eat, drink, sleep, repeat. Those who go on in life without a care thinking about the next life are thinking about Jesus coming again. And Paul is warning them saying, you better be ready because we don't know when he's going to return, but you better believe he will, so be ready. Verses 8 and 9, he shows us this specifically. Look at what he says. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just suggest to you that as I was reading those verses, they were weird. I'm reading through like, okay, yeah, let's be ready. Let's not, let's not slumber and let's not, let's not be drunk. Let's be ready and ready for Jesus and he'll, and he'll come. And, and it'll be like happy. But that's not what that said. He didn't say it wasn't happy, but it was on a war footing. Did you notice that? Like, be ready. You better have a breastplate and you better have a helmet because battle's coming. I was like, what? How is that good news? What, what am I supposed to get from that? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that when God comes, you better have your armor on because battle's coming. But then he quickly reminds them, now remember, those of us who are in Christ are not appointed for wrath or for destruction, but for salvation. So see, there's the good news. Okay. Yeah, there's the good news. That's the happiness that I needed. What is he doing? He's echoing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59, verses 14 to 20. Let's put those on the screen. I'm going to read this to you because I think this is important that you understand the continuity of the Old Testament to the New Testament and that Paul is telling you the same story that God's always been telling. Notice what he says, the prophet Isaiah. This is 700, 800 years before Paul. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. 
He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he, will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. So you see, Isaiah is saying God is going to come with a holy vengeance to bring justice to evildoers, and yet with a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness, and that those who repent of their sins will find salvation. This is this picture of Jesus coming at judgment to execute justice. It's a fearful day if you are not on his side. It really is. I, I plead with you that if you do not trust in Jesus for your sins, do so today. Because you don't know when that day's coming. You don't know when illness, car crash, the end of the world happens. And you have to be ready. You need armor. And your own armor isn't enough. Your gear isn't good enough. You need the armor that only Christ can give you. His breastplate of his righteousness, the helmet of his salvation that he provides and gives to you freely when you repent of your sins and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you to be my salvation because I can't do it. This is what Isaiah is saying. It's what Paul is saying. It's what Jesus is saying and what Jesus will do. Reminds me of Tolkien's great work in The Lord of the Rings in the third book, The Return of the King but I like movies better than books. I know it's sort of heresy to say that for those of you who are readers. But in the movie, The Return of the King, there's this great scene that is, that is portrayed before us in which all is dark, the valley is dark, the sky is dark. Aragorn and those who are with him are fighting the armies um, and being defeated by the evil armies. The orcs are down there just slaying them. When a bright light pierces the darkness and Aragorn remembers the words of Gandalf the Grey, on the third day, look to the east. And there up on the mountain on the hill in the east as the sun rises and light pierces the dark sky is Gandalf the White. More powerful after having been risen from the depths of the earth where he fought the dragon defeating the dragon. Gandalf the White is now powerful atop a white horse with armies following him, rushing down the mountain, and they run through the orcs, slaying them and rescuing the people of Middle-earth. You see, Tolkien is telling that same story that the Bible is telling, saying there will be a great judgment. Evil will not prevail. God will win. And you better know whose side you're on. Why does Paul tell the Thessalonians this? Why do you and I need to know it? Because when you're discouraged and you're battle-weary in life, 
whether it's from the onslaught of the enemy against you or your own body and its failure, when you're disheartened and you're like, I don't know, how can I carry on? Paul is saying you must know that the future hope of glory is unimaginably great. And it is forever. And if you know that that is your future and it is sure, it will sustain you now for the holy living that you must do in the few years of your life on this earth. What are 60 or 80 years in regard to forever? Nothing. We're talking about forever. Like without end does not end. Mathematically, you can't even compare 60 to infinity. It's forever. That's why you and I need to know that. Because we need to trust in Christ for our future hope. And if we do that, it will shape our holy living now, which is this third and final question. What does holy living look like in the meantime? That's what Paul turns back to right at the end of chapter 5. And I think he, he talks, he just, he has these like triads of things like boom, 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 these things. Like these are things you need to know and do. And he doesn't explain them. They don't need lots of explaining. But he says them, but I, I think they're kind of generally fall, at least for me as I read it, into, into three categories. There's holy living by grace that helps us in our interaction with one another. There's holy living by grace that is going to help us in our attitude of our own heart. And there's holy living by grace that's going to help us pay attention to the Spirit of God. So let's look at each of those. Holy living by grace in your interaction with one another. He starts this off right right in verse 12 when he says you need to acknowledge those who are using their spiritual gifts. Acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you and who, in the Lord and who admonish you. There's one of those triads. Like, okay, acknowledge and here's your three categories. Those who work hard, those who care for you, and those who admonish you. And what is he saying there? The hardworking among you are all members of the body of Christ who are working hard using their spiritual, spiritual gifts. Acknowledge them. Show respect. They're, they're encouraging you. They're serving you in great ways. We have parking attendants that are doing that. Greeters that do that. We have worship team people that are doing that. Staff that do that. All kinds of people. And it's, and it's wonderful to respect and acknowledge the work that they do. And he says those who care for you. The NIV, I think, doesn't do justice here. That word is those who are over you. And they say care, trying to show the intent, which is good. But I think it's those who are over you, caring for you. I think he's talking about the elders who care for you and who are overseers of your, of your souls. And so, honor them. Respect and acknowledge them. Which is why Paul probably also, though, at the end of verse 25 says, pray for, you, pray for us. Pray for us, brothers and sisters. Who's Paul? Paul's one of the elders, an apostle of the elders, right? So, I'm saying pray for us as your elders, as your pastors. Pray for us. We need it. We haven't arrived. We haven't figured it all out. We don't know everything. We don't got it perfect. We just are following Jesus and are saying, let's go. Let's follow Jesus together. Come with us. So pray for us in that. And then the admonishers. Now, admonishment is warning or correcting people, right? And that might include elders, but it can be any brother and sister who's going to correct another. We don't like that, though, do we? Really? Could you just left that one out, maybe? Or I, whatever. I mean, everybody wants to leave something out, right? Like, I don't, I don't like to be corrected. I mean, it can be difficult to be corrected. And what Paul says is that those who are correcting you, you need to hold in high regard. What? You got to be kidding me. I mean, maybe I'll take it with a grain of salt. High regard? 
acknowledge them? That's hard to do. I'd just rather avoid them. But Paul says you must be at peace with them. At peace with them, not divisive. They're not your enemy. They're your brother and sister in Christ. So can you take correction graciously? Man, that's a hard one. He goes on. Doesn't get any easier, sorry to say. (laughs) At 14, he says, not only are you going to be at peace with everybody, but you need to be patient with everyone. And again, right before that, he lists another triad of things. So warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened and help the weak. Be patient with all of them. (laughs) What's he saying here? The idle are those who are unruly and disruptive, like a soldier who gets out of line, out of rank, and, and is a troublemaker, won't follow leaders, who disturbs the peace. Warn them. The disheartened, those who are mistreated for their faith, maybe they're grieving over the death of a friend or a family member or, or again, maybe an illness, and they're disheartened, they're discouraged. Encourage them. And the weak often refers to moral weakness, the one who falls into sin again and again and again and again. Help them. And Paul says, be patient with all of them. Why? Because it's you and it's me. And God is always patient with us in that. And so be patient with them. And then he says, oh man, gosh, verse 15, don't get paybacks. Don't get paybacks. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. Strive to do what is good. Man, I used to live by this motto when I was like late in high school and early in college days, and we'd have little like rivalries that would go back and forth and wars and stuff. And and even pranks, it would come out in pranks. And there's too many great stories I could tell you, which I can't tell you all now. But when people would prank us, they would say, are you mad? I said, no, we don't get mad. We just get even. Paybacks? Nope. He's saying don't pay back wrong for wrong. Learn to forgive. And so he says, do all this with peace, with patience, and without paybacks. It's not a quick fix. It's not easy. It's often time-consuming and costly. You may say, well, hold on a second. I know I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. Hmm. Hmm. Ah, what do you mean by that? If you mean I can't be best friends with everybody, true. Can't be best friends with everybody. Just we don't have the social capacity for that, the bandwidth to do that, the time to do that. But I can't figure out how you can love someone and not like them. Like, because when we say we don't like, it usually means I don't have to be, go out of my way to be nice or kind. I just got to love them. What is your love then? What what does that look like? I don't want to know what that looks like. We're commanded to be at peace and to be patient. And if that's not enough, Paul, at the end of this, in verse 26, says, greet everyone with a holy kiss. Greet everyone with a holy kiss. You disagree with people, you're impatient with them, you don't like them, Paul says, kiss them. Ah, that's kind of like liking. Now, that's the greeting of the day. That's how, you know, Italians still do it, right? Kiss on the cheek, Right? Okay, so we don't do that so much here, but it's like handshakes and hugs, right? So we're quick to dislike, ignore, and diss, and we're supposed to greet people with a holy kiss. Instead of cold shoulders, you should extend handshakes and hugs. 
with those you love and you say you don't like who you should like. That's what Paul's saying. That's what holy living looks like. Why? Because that future has been so set. We are going to live with each other forever. Holy living affects your interactions, but it also affects the attitude of your heart. This is in verses 16 to 18, and he hits us with another triad here. And he says, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Right? That has to do with the attitude of your heart and how, you're gonna re- how you view life and what you think God's doing in it. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your life is in constant communication with God. No matter what's going on. It might be rejoicing in God. It might be praying. It might be uh, showing thanksgiving. You have great reason to rejoice because God is good. You see his beauty in creation. You see it in kindness of his people. You see it in Jesus who rescued you, redeemed you, cleansed you, justified, adopted you into the family, made you an heir of the kingdom of God. Man, that's worth rejoicing over. Amen, it is. That doesn't now mean that everything is always going to be happy because happiness and joy are not the same thing. It's why he also says pray because a lot of times there's hard times and we pray relying on God and we pray through it. It includes crying out to God in our hurt and sorrow and asking him for mercy. Asking for wisdom when we don't know what to do at work or with our family or with a friend. It's not just on Sunday. It's like each day, communication with God. That's why he says continually, ongoing, right? It doesn't mean you got to stop like every three steps and pray. Oh, I got to stop and pray. Oh, I got to stop and pray. It's just, it's this attitude of your heart. Like, okay, God, what is it that you got for me? What, What are we doing? What are you showing me today? And it says, give thanks in all circumstances. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention mention this, that John Kerwin teaches our knuckleheads, whom is an affectionate term of people we love and like, called middle schoolers, that the secret sauce is thanksgiving. Because when you can be thankful, it changes your attitude and your posture to say, okay, God, I can see in this that I'll be thankful because you've been good to me. I mean, what was Molly talking about if not thankfulness to God who was faithfully with her with whatever she faced? Right? The last thing here, holy living by grace also means you need to give attention to the Spirit. And this is in verses 19 to 22 where it says, don't quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them, hold on what is good, reject every kind of evil. Listen to and don't quench. To quench is to drown out. But we're to listen to the Spirit, not drown out the Spirit. Now, how do we do that? We might drown out the Spirit by being too busy, not having time. We might do it by um, saying, yeah, I don't think that's right. I'm going to do what I want to do. There might be all kinds of ways we do that. But Paul's point is that you need to be listening to the Spirit of God who is working powerfully in the life of his people. You need to be in church to hear the preaching of God's word through his ministers. If you let other things overrule that, it's a way of quenching out the Spirit. You need to hear the prophecy. That is the encouraging words of other Christians. You hear that through gospel stories like Molly did today. You might hear it in a Bible study or in a community group or in a friend when you're having coffee together. You need to hear those those prophesying, encouraging words. Maybe God is, is leading you to this. We need to listen to other Christians as they're encouraging us and not treat it with contempt or ignore it. Because God may be speaking through them. And you say, but how do I know if it's right or not? Well, that's why Paul says, test it. Test it. Right? And how do you test it? 
All prophecy, all words of encouragement, all preaching and teaching is to be tested according to the revealed word of God because guess what? What God gave us in his word and what the spirit says are not going to be two different things. They're going to corroborate each other. That's how you know. Part of the elder's job is to weigh out what other people are teaching and instructing, instructing and to correct if there's error and to say, hold up, we're missing it. And part of your job too is to point out to pastors or elders if you think, hey, the Bible says this, why aren't we doing this? Make us aware of it. So he says, cling to what is true, reject evil, know your Bible, lean on your pastors and elders to discern what is true and what is false, what is good and evil. Boy, do we ever need that in society today, don't we? Because we are in the midst of a social revolution where it seems like there is an increasingly blatant effort to have anti-Christian morals, where sin is promoted more and more. And it's not new, it's the way of the world. It's just continuing. Some of you don't realize it's happening, maybe, because you're young and you're just kind of new into it, like this is the way the world is. Others of you have lived some decades, four score, or like this is not the way the world has always been. And you see a bigger difference. And what do you do? During the French Revolution that saw King Louis XVI and his queen beheaded, history records a pretty amazing event. After the public execution of the king and his queen, the frenzied mob shouted, Bring out the prince! He's next! The lad was terrified at only six years old, but he was in line to be king. And according to the storytellers and the historians, the young prince is brought out onto the platform and he stands on the platform trembling and shaking in his black velvet coat and his black patent leather shoes and his blonde hair curling over. And the mob screamed, Down with royalty! Off with his head! And then another cry came out of the crowd. Wait! Don't kill him. Don't kill him. You only send his soul to heaven, and that's too good for royalty. I say turn him over to Meg, the old witch. She'll teach him to steal and cheat and lie. And he'll roam the streets as a tramp, and when his life finally ends, his soul will go to hell. That's what royalty deserves. And so the mob took the advice and gave the young six-year-old boy to Meg, the witch, who would train him in her evil arts. But history tells us that every time this wicked woman prompted the prince to be profane, that he would stubbornly stamp his little feet and clench his fists, say, I will not say it! I won't do it! I was born to be a king, and I won't act that way. Brothers and sisters, the future hope of glory is for an inheritance into a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And because of that, and the sanctifying grace of God, you can now live a holy life relying on his spirit. You won't do it perfectly, but you too can stamp your feet and clench your fists and say, no, I won't do it. I'll honor my king. Will you? Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you will help us to be people who by the power of your spirit and your sanctifying grace are so captivated with the hope of future glory that it does shape and impact the way we live holy lives for you each and every day. Would you use your spirit to continue to convict us, correct us, challenge us, but also to encourage us and to lift us up when we're downtrodden and discouraged? Meet each person here today in their place. If there's anyone here who has not yet come to know you, who hasn't trusted you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Spirit, would you work in their hearts and would you hear their prayers as they seek you? Bring them into the family. Make them heirs of the kingdom. We ask in your name. Amen.